Now, once upon a time, I was a stockbroker, and that's not some start to a weird fairy tale or something like that. I really was a stockbroker at Charles Schwab in Indianapolis. I was able to trade stocks and bonds and mutual funds, ETFs, talk about 403Bs, 401. You're bored. You're bored already. That's okay. That's okay. Now, you have to, you have to take a test to become a stockbroker. It's called the Series 7. There are 250 questions in the Series 7, but you can get 70 wrong. You only have to get 180 out of 250 to pass the Series 7. Let's do the math together. That's a 72%. You teachers out there know that's a C minus. You can get a C minus on this test and then trade somebody's stock. Right? Now, there are some professions out there that if you get a 7 out of 10, you're doing great, like baseball. That's awesome, right? But if you are a 7 out of 10 as a pilot <laughs> or as a surgeon, maybe not so great. And I kind of felt the same about being a stockbroker. I ha- always had this in the back of my mind when I was talking to somebody that they could be talking to a C-minus stockbroker for all they knew, right? Well, Jesus tells a story, the one we're going to talk about today, it's this parable about a C-minus money manager. He wasn't very good at his job, or he was dishonest, or both. Now, this parable is a little difficult to understand. It's confusing, and when you read it at first glance, you go, is that really what Jesus is saying? And it also talks about money. So Jerry and Josh gave me a parable that's hard to understand that talks about money. Thanks a lot, guys. I won't forget that. So before we we go on, I want to answer a question you might be thinking about. Why talk about money in church? Well, one reason is because it's super important to us. It's something that we deal with every single day. It drives a lot of what we do and how we do it, right? So it's important to us. But maybe even more important than that, Jesus talks about it a lot. Half of the stories that Jesus tells have some aspect of money in it. So if it's important to us and it's important to Jesus, we talk about it in church, right? So Jesus is telling this story to his disciples, his followers, Now, the Pharisees or the religious teachers of the day are there too, but he's mainly talking to his followers. And he launches into this story about a C-minus money manager who isn't very good at his job or he's dishonest. He's squandering his boss's money. He's spending somebody else's money for his benefit, right? How do you think the boss responded to that when he found out. Well, not well. He calls the C-minus money manager and he says, Smith, this is Wilson. It's come to my attention that you've been squandering my money. No, this is unacceptable. You've got two weeks to get the books in order and get out. You're fired. So the money manager is panicking, right? He had just been fired. He was worrying about what to do next. I mean, wouldn't you? Man, I just lost my job. Uh, What am I going to do? I I don't have any other skills, and the job market's terrible. 
Can't dig ditches. I mean, look at me. Too proud to beg. But then he got an idea. And he put this plan into action right away. He immediately started contacting his boss's clients. Nichols, hey, yeah, Smith over at Mount Olive Commodities, right. Hey, hey, we're looking at the books here and it looks like you owe my boss 800 gallons of olive oil. Hey, no, no, don't worry, don't worry. Tell you what, let's cut it in half. We'll make it uh, 400. Would that help you out? Hey, I knew it would. Anyways, hey, let's get this going right now. I'll get the paperwork right over. One-time deal, man, so go quick with me, all right, will you? Thanks, all right, hey, we'll catch you around. Thank you. Now, 800 gallons of olive oil is roughly three years worth of salary, and he cut that in half. That's a significant discount, but he doesn't even stop there. Phillips, hey, yeah, Smith from Mount Olive Commodities. How are you, man? I saw the new camel looking good on you. Anyways, hey, um, let's cut to the chase here. Looks like you owe a thousand bushels of wheat to my boss. No, no, no worries, no worries. I want to help you out. Tell you what, let's reduce it to 800. Speechless, huh? You're welcome. I got you. Um, hey, I'll get that over and we'll be seeing you around. Thanks. So the money manager had basically ensured that he'd have friends on his last day at work, right? So he gave this significant discount to all of the boss's clients. And culturally at the time, they would have been expected to return the favor. If he had shown up on their doorstep, they would have taken care of him and his family. He was set up for life. That's pretty incredible. Smooth, right? He did a good job there. Now, how do you think the boss responds to this? He had just been taken for quite a lot of money. I had just been taken for quite a lot of money. <laughs> but you got to commend the guy. I do admire him for being shrewd. What? I mean, wait. So... He commends the guy? He admires the guy? So what's Jesus trying to say here? Go, squander your boss's money for your own benefit, and you will be commended. Let's pray. <laughs> no, that's not what he's saying. Of course that's not what he's saying, but that's, that's why this is so difficult maybe for us to understand at first glance, because we kind of want justice, right? We want something to happen to this money manager. So there are a few things that help us understand this. It puts it into context for us. First, the discounts were significant. Let's play a little math game, shall we? 800 gallons of olive oil is roughly three years' salary. Now, we learned from Josh last week that the average in Indiana right now, give or take, is around $50,000 for a year salary. Three times 50000 $150,000. He cuts that in half. In today's terms, he gives a discount of $75,000. A year's and a half worth of salary. That's significant. A thousand bushels of wheat is the other example that he gives. That's roughly nine years worth of salary at the time. That's $450,000. He gives a discount of ninety. dollars over $150,000 worth of discounts in just the two examples. But the point is, he gives this type of discount to all, every single client that the estate owner has. That's a lot of money. Think about how you would react if that were you. Think of your, your biggest debt that you've got 
or you've ever had. Maybe it's your mortgage. That's what it is for a lot of folks. So if somebody called me up and said, Mr. Johnson, you owe 200000 on your house, but now you owe 100000 on your house. You're welcome. Goodbye. Click. What? I'd be thrilled, right? And these debtors were thrilled too. And culturally, they're obligated to return the favor. What does that mean? Well, at the time, if you're given something this extravagant or this significant, you would have given it back to them. Now, they, they couldn't afford to give it back, so they would have allowed the money manager into their home forever. And he did this with all of the clients. So he was set for the rest of his life. He had a place to go. He had a roof, food, a place for his family to live. That's pretty smooth. Now, if you're like me, the part that's difficult to understand is actually what the boss does. He reacts and he says, I admire that. I commend that. Well, why would he do that? Well, there are a couple of reasons. One is it's kind of like a press conference after the NBA finals, right? That's going on right now. The, the playoffs are going on, and it's a, it's a, it's a basketball player set, standing there and saying, you know what, well played, good game, you got me this time. So there's a little bit of that aspect going on, but here's what really helped me understand it. At the time, Jewish law and custom was you couldn't charge interest on a loan. Why is that important? Well, the estate owner likely gave money to other people as a loan, these clients of his. You can't charge interest on that. So what did they do? They charged a commodity on top of that, olive oil, wheat. This is a way that the estate owner could kind of get around the law. He could be a little dishonest and get that interest without actually charging for it. Well, the C-minus money manager knows that, right? He uses that to his advantage. He sees, hey, he can't do anything to me if he's being dishonest, so I'm going to swindle the swindler. Well played, C-minus money manager, right? But still, what's Jesus trying to say? Because he's not trying to say, go and take your boss for a ride, right? Well, luckily he tells us. This is Luke 16, 8 through 9. The rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal. I love that. Dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. And it is true that the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than the children of the light or followers of God. Here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. The takeaway is simple to see, but difficult to do. Be shrewd. That's the takeaway. Have you ever noticed, like when you say a word over and over and over again, it starts to sound weird? Shrewd. 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 
Sounds weird to me. I think one of the reasons that it sounds weird to me is because we don't use this word very often, do we? It's not something that we even think of as a positive word. I think of like a lawyer doing something, whatever the cost, to get his client off or taking somebody for all they're worth, right? But that's not actually what shrewd means. Here are a couple of definitions just so that we're all on the same page. The definition of shrewd is having or showing sharp powers of judgment. Astute. That doesn't sound so bad. Here's what it literally means. This, this word shrewd in this translation literally means to act with foresight. It means thinking ahead. It means planning ahead. It means being wise and thinking things through. That's actually something that Jesus is saying is commendable, admirable. It's something that we should do. Shrewdness. So, so Jesus is telling us to be shrewd in this life for eternal impact. This is Luke 16, 9. Here's the lesson. Don't you love it when Jesus just spells it out? Here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. He continues, verse 13, no one can serve two masters for you will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Another way of saying it, I believe everything I am or own belongs to God and should be used accordingly. I believe everything I am or own belongs to God and should be used accordingly. Every relationship, every circumstance, every square inch of my home, every dollar, every cent. Everything you can think of that you think of as yours belongs to God and should be used accordingly. I don't like that. I'm being honest. That's hard for me. It's, it's hard for me to think about how to use that intentionally for God and eternal impact. So I'm going to share with you a story about how I am not shrewd at all, right? So this is a story about how I got locked in my son's room by my son who's four. (laughs) So let me back up. I have a 15-month-old daughter, Eliza, and I have a four-year-old, Asher, incredibly active kids. My wife, Abby, was not at home at the time, so you can't blame her for anything that's about to happen here and um, she's gone. She'll be gone for a couple of hours, and I'm doing my husbandly duty. I'm doing my best, and I'm putting my kids to bed. Eliza, I just put down. Things were going okay. We're we're awesome, but things were going okay. Nobody died or anything, and and so then I'm putting Asher to bed. We're in his room. Now, he's an incredibly active kid, like incredibly active. If you're ever in Little Ridge Kids and you have volunteered over there, thank you. Thank you. So he's so active that when he, when he was first in a big boy bed, like when he was like two years old, three years old, he would just wander about the house at two o'clock in the morning. So we turned the lock around on his door. We locked him in. It wasn't a dungeon, I promise, but we, we locked him in there, right? That's important because I'm in his room. He reached around, locked the door, shut it. Well, you think, well, do you have a key in there? Well, that would have been shrewd, but I do not. I do not have a key in there. And I am very proud to say I panicked. 
So first I start with interrogating the four-year-old. Where were you? Did you swallow it? Where is it? Is it somewhere in here? And he thinks it's a game. And so that did not work very well. So then I go, okay, what's next? Okay, I can jump out the window. Well, he, his room is on the second story, right? So I jump out the window, and now I'm thinking about, well, actually, this is what it would cost for me to break both legs. And so I, okay, back up there. I can bust down the door, right? And I realize, no, I can't actually bust down the door. I'm not strong enough to do that. And I think, okay, hinges, can I get those off? Don't have any tools. They're really tight on there. I'm freaking out. I have my phone. I can call my, I can't do that. I can't call my wife. I can't give her the satisfaction. I can't do it. I can't do it. Okay, so there I am. So what do I do? I take this piece of luggage under Asher's bed. I pull it out. I break a piece off. I MacGyver that as much as I possibly can. I stick it in there, and I finally get it open. It sounds like it took about 10 seconds. It took about 30 minutes. (laughs) Now, here's the thing. This entire time, Eliza is crying. I feel terrible, right? But I'm sure shrewd. You're right? Ignore the fact that Eliza's crying the whole time. Ignore the fact that my four-year-old son locks me in there. And ignore the fact that I'm too proud to call my wife about it, right? She might be finding out now for the first time, <laughs> right? This is hard. That's the point. This is hard. It's hard to think ahead. It's hard to look at your surroundings and, and have good judgment, but Jesus is telling us that there are some practical, real ways that he's asking us to do this, and he's preparing us to do this. The first one is be aware. The money manager immediately recognizes his situation, right? He doesn't seem to miss a beat. This is Luke 16.3. The manager thought to himself, now what? My boss has fired me. I don't have the strength to dig ditches, and I'm too proud to beg. He knew he was in trouble. He immediately identified it. He didn't go post about it on Facebook. He didn't call his mom. He didn't do any of that. Is that just me? I think that might be just me. But he really does. He he sees the problem right away, and he starts to, to hatch a plan. Shrewdness forces us to recognize the circumstances that surround us. Here's another way of saying that. Here's the question that I think God is asking us. How is God asking you and me to be uniquely shrewd? There are opportunities all around us, some that only you can enter into or I can enter into because of the way that God has resourced us or because of the relationships that you have that I don't have or because of the giftedness and abilities that you have or the time that you have. Remember, everything I am or own belongs to God and should be used accordingly. And your situation is different than mine. And he's asking us to be aware of that. Where is God asking you to be uniquely shrewd? It's not a blanket statement. But he's not even saying, hey, just see it. That's not enough. We see a lot of things. He's also asking us to be faithful. Jesus shows us pretty clearly that shrewdness is closely connected to faithfulness. So if shrewdness is thinking ahead, having good judgment, faithfulness is being motivated to have ongoing obedience, trustworthiness with God. It's motivation here. 
This is how he describes it in the parable. If you are faithful in little things, you'll be faithful in large ones. But if you're dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And if you're untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? And if you're not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with things of your own? So if all I am and own belongs to God and should be used accordingly, we should be motivated to make God-honoring decisions and do God-honoring things. That's incredibly simple, but really hard for us to do. And this is really our reminder, it's not inherently about us at all. It's about God. So don't misunderstand. Loving God and being faithful and being shrewd does not equal becoming rich. It's not what it means. That's not the point. What Jesus is saying is if we're faithful in whatever little things, when no one is looking, we'll be faithful in big things. And that includes our money. Here's the lesson he lays out. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. He says it right there. Then when your possessions are gone, which they will be, they will welcome you to an eternal home. So this is inherently focused on other people. He's saying, you, your situation, everything you are can make an eternal impact to your friends, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors. And that is what he's asking us to do, to think ahead about how we can do that. That's eternally significant. So it's not about us or becoming rich. It's about him and adding richness to his kingdom. But it's not enough to just be aware or even be motivated and faithful. We also need to be active. We need to do something, right? The money manager hatched this plan and he saw it through. And if he's commended for acting shrewdly for his own purposes, how much more? If we act shrewdly for God's purposes, will we be admired and commended? Jesus is telling us this story and he He's actually using his own life as a pretty great example of that. Through his life, through his death, resurrection, Jesus acted on our behalf. He's aware of our need. He was faithful to God in his journey, and he acted shrewdly. But the thing that really sticks out to me about this parable is the timing of it. He tells this story while he is traveling to Jerusalem to be crucified. That's how shrewd Jesus is. He can see that far ahead. That is pretty shrewd. Anthony Bresnikin is a reporter and author from Western Pennsylvania, and he recently told a story about Mr. Rogers. Yeah, that Mr. Rogers. Yep, that one. Bresnikin was from Pittsburgh, which is where Fred Rogers is from as well. And Bresnikin grew up watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and he was a student at the University of Pittsburgh at the time, and he was dealing with this significant loss in his life. He was lost, he was struggling, he was in a dark place. So he's walking out of the dorm one morning, and what does he hear? It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Won't you be my neighbor? Well, it draws him in. 
He goes into this common room all by himself. He stands and watches an entire episode of Mr. Rogers just standing there. And here's the thing. It made him feel a little bit better. Fast forward a couple of days and he's on an elevator at the University of Pittsburgh. The door opens and there he is, the sweatered one. (laughs) Mr. Rogers in the flesh comes in and Bresnikin, I would do the same, is geeking out, right? He's freaking out because he's, he's there in real life. And so he finally gets enough courage and he says, Mr. Rogers, I don't mean to bother you, but I just wanted to say thanks. Now, Mr. Rogers smiles and asks, did you grow up as one of my television neighbors? He opens his arms, he brings Bresnikin in to this big hug and he says, it's good to see you again, neighbor. Well, Bresnikin lost it, right? He just starts to blurt it all out. And he starts to say, hey, Mr. Rogers, I just recently came across your show and it was incredibly meaningful for me and I'm really struggling and the words ran out and he said, so just thanks again for that. Mr. Rogers nodded, he undid his scarf, he puts down his satchel, he motions for both he and Bresnikin to sit down on the windowsill, and he says, do you want to tell me what's upsetting you so? So Bresnikin did. He told him that he had recently just lost his grandfather. He was adrift, he didn't know what to do, he was struggling Before he knew it, Mr. Rogers is telling a story about his grandfather. And he says, you'll never stop missing the people you love. Now, before long, Bresnikin realized they've been talking for a little while. So he says thank you again for the 13th time and apologizes if he has made Mr. Rogers late for wherever he was headed. And Mr. Rogers smiled and said in that calm, gentle voice, Sometimes you're right where you need to be. That's all that takes. Maybe it's a hug. Maybe it's being a good neighbor. See, Jesus did this for us. And all he's asking us to do is look around. Be aware of how you can do this for someone else. Every single person here has someone who has done that for you. And that's what he's asking us to do, is be shrewd, think ahead, and apply it to your own life. So how is God asking you to do that? What is it for you? Because it's different for all of us. Maybe he's asking you to be shrewd by intentionally investing in a relationship that's in your life. Who just popped to your mind? Maybe he's saying, go and interact with that person. Invite them to your home. Be shrewd in that way. Change your schedule. Have you ever asked this question? How can I find the time to do that? Well, change your schedule. Think ahead. Find the time. We have this kid venture camp coming up. What an incredible way to impact eternity in first and second graders' lives. And I'm not saying that so we fill up a a volunteer sheet. I'm saying that because that might be an opportunity for you to be shrewd and to interact in a way that you have the opportunity to do that. Open up your home to a single mom or a single dad who needs it. 
Do you have junk in your spare room like we do? Clean it out and invite them in. And we can't ignore the worldly resource part of this, even though I kind of want to. What he's saying is every dollar and cent that you have, you can plan ahead, you can budget, and you can give toward eternally. Whether that's here at the Ridge or someone else, you can give in a way that impacts other people and impacts eternity. You can do that. All you have to do is think ahead. So he's just saying be shrewd. Be shrewd somewhere. Be shrewd anywhere. Be shrewd because Jesus was first shrewd for you. So the question is simple. It's just hard to do, and part of me doesn't want to do it. How is God asking you to be uniquely shrewd? 